2020, the year everything changed. Today, I welcome Laura Tolchin from Exeger to talk about ESG, compliance, and we look into the future and how 2020 was the year that everything changed. This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode, and you're in for a real treat today because I have with me Laura Tulchin. Laura is with Exeger, and we're going to have a, I think, fascinating talk about ESG. So, Laura, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thank you, Tom. I'm so excited to be here. Laura, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your professional background and, and add a few words about your academic background because it's a little different than most of us. Sure, absolutely. So I am a director um, in the advisory business at Exeger. Um, Exeger is a global leader in compliance and risk management solutions with hundreds of former banking compliance and general counsel experts, investigations, and intelligence professionals, as well as 125 in-house developers and data scientists that support our experts and clients with award-winning tools across financial institutions, corporate and government agencies. So we like to think of ourselves as um, experts plus technology combined. Um, I have been with Exeger for over seven years, so really since its founding, and I regularly work with financial institutions, multinationals, and government agencies in managing risk. I'm also currently getting my MBA at Columbia Business School, where I focus on ESG and sustainable business practices. Prior to Exeger, I lived for a number of years in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, where I was a Fulbright Scholar and worked for Brookfield Asset Management. I also got my master's in political science down in Brazil. So I certainly, you know, got a bit of a an international um, background and, and can really speak in terms of you know, how other other developing nations and emerging countries kind of see business and ESG practices. Um, I will say my, my Fulbright focused on the issue of racial quotas in the public university system down in Brazil. Um, so, you know, I think just having had that incredible experience uh, really has stayed with me all these years and, and informed kind of my, my viewpoint on, you know, our topic today, ESG, and, and some good, pra- good business practices um, and what that looks like in 2021. And that really brings us to our topic today, which, of course, is ESG. Um, I've been surprised a little bit, but also pleased that there seems to be an explosion of interest in almost the regular media about ESG and into 2021, but you and Exeter have been talking about this for quite some time. So I was wondering why now is ESG gaining so much steam in the public arena as opposed to compliance or other arenas we've been talking about it for some time? Yeah, definitely. Certainly kind of you can't open the newspaper or the virtual newspaper these days without seeing um, a ton of information out there on ESG. I mean, I think it's a it's a lot of different factors. I think, you know, a large push for the past, let's say, 
five-ish years have really been coming from investors, both institutional and otherwise, um, and activist shareholders and stakeholders taking an active lead in pushing investments to be ESG friendly. And I think what that means is changing as well, right? So that kind of started with simple screening out of negative companies. And I mean, that goes back decades, right? Where even kind of saw it starting with divestment um, efforts around apartheid or, or things of that nature, where you're simply saying, I don't want any money or any business going to this type of industry or this type of company view, what it may be. I think that um, definition of ESG, and, and you can call it ESG, you can call it impact investing. I mean, those things have slightly different meanings. But really, I do think there is an evolution there, right, of kind of coming into a more integrated, holistic way of thinking about investment and business so that you are um, weeding out negative negatively impacting ESG companies and or, and or bringing in positive impact. Um, and I think, you know, right now, right, 2020, 2021, we're seeing this really blowing up. I mean, part of this is because in the past couple of years, 2020 in particular, you're seeing higher returns in the ESG space. So I, I think there was this statistic from August which showed that 64% of actively managed ESG funds are beating their benchmark versus 49% overall. I mean, that's kind of an amazing stat because if you think about it, you know, if you just invest your money regularly, you kind of have a 50-50 chance of beating the market or your benchmark. If you invest well, right, if you invest in ESG, you've got a better chance. You're beating the odds. Um, and I think that there's this kind of overall recognition that ESG is actually good for business. It's not just good for the world. It's, it's good for your bottom line. I think there are a couple other factors which are making uh, ESG just so important and, and much discussed these days. I mean, I think there is a, a role of employees internally in a lot of organizations that's really kind of taken on almost an activist position, really pushing employers to be ESG friendly. I think that's really interesting, really important. Um, you can see that in a lot of different ways across a lot of different industries. And then there's also this public opinion aspect, right? So, um, you know, making ESG commitments is seen as a way to not just attract and retain talent in terms of employees, but also kind of reach consumers, be it B2C or B2B. And, you know, whether that's just kind of like a marketing ploy, I mean, that's a whole other discussion, but it certainly seems to be kind of top of mind in terms of how companies are going to the market and making themselves be, you know, ESG risk averse and ESG value generation friendly. Or perhaps we could take a step back and and I could ask you, one, to define ESG, but then ask, are there any universal standards you or I could point listeners to, or is it right now uh, various standards from various regulatory bodies literally across the globe? Yeah, totally. Good, good question, Tom, and definitely important one to take a step back. I mean, my viewpoint is that it's, it's kind of a truism to say today that ESG um, has no real definition. I mean, it means everything. And maybe to some people, that means it means nothing, right? So it's the environment, the air we breathe, right? How are we thinking about uh, climate change? 
as well as kind of the communities we take part in, that F, that social aspect of ESG, right? So ESG, environmental, social, governments, that F can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And then that G, you know, it's the rules that govern our organization. So there are just so many different ways about thinking about ESG. And I think one of the challenges we're seeing, and it's really kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm hearing it from clients today at Exeter, it's kind of bubbling to the forefront, is that there is no one golden standard in terms of how to measure ESG risk. We have kind of an alphabet soup, what they like to call it, of different disclosure bodies. So in the past decade, there have been a number of organizations that have come together really on a voluntary basis to kind of create different reporting metrics to show ESG risk and ESG performance. Um, some of these are kind of firmly in the client space, like the Carbon Disclosure Project. Um, some of these are really kind of broad, like the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals or the Principles for Responsible Investing, the PRI. Um, but there are a bunch of them. And I mean, I think they're all, most of these disclosure bodies, they're all, you know, good intentioned and, and really trying to, to, to kind of crack open this nut. But at this point, there are a lot of different ones that kind of maybe speak to different use cases and different industry needs and different nuances, but, you know, kind of get to this point of, of overwhelming people with different, different standards, right, which may or may not be commensurate with one another. On top of that, right, so you've got these big kind of disclosure bodies, most of which are international. On top of that, then you've got kind of um, – for-profit companies that are looking to sell their own methodologies on how to measure ESG. So those are a bunch of different companies that are going out to clients, financial institutions, multinationals, and saying, okay, you, you want to be conscious of ESG risk? We've got a way to measure it. The problem is there are a bunch of them, right? And they're not all doing it the same way, um, nor is that transparent. You know, it's, it's an it's a internal methodology. And then even on top of that, you've got companies doing it saying, oh, we're just going to develop our own in-house proprietary methodologies of how to measure ESG. So there are a lot of complications here. Um, there is no one golden standard of sort of these are the metrics that you need to fulfill to say that you have a truly, you know, uh, comprehensive ESG program. I personally think, you know, that's recognized as an issue. I mean, a few months ago, you saw two major disclosure bodies or accounting, sustainable accounting bodies, um, SASB and IIRC. They merged kind of an explicit recognition that they, there does need to be some confluence of, of factors coming together in this area. Um, so I do think, you know, one way or another that we will we'll kind of get through this and, and define at least some minimally viable metrics that make up ESG. Um, in the meantime, I think, you know, there there is kind of, you know, a, a number of different ways of looking at what it means to be environmentally, socially, and government sort of risk minimizing and then value, value creating. Um, Obviously, today, this is a lot easier um, to do when you're talking about measuring the, the, the performance or the risk of public companies, which have just so much more information out there from a disclosure perspective. I think private companies, um, the, 
you know, there still remain a little bit of a black box when it comes to what, you know, how to measure ESG there. Um, you know, I know this is something I speak to my clients about and, and Exeger, you know, tries to use its technology um, on the unstructured data side to really be able to, to, to quantify or really measure how private companies are doing in the, in the ESG space. But, you know, I think this is where the industry is going. That's probably the, the next big challenge in terms of what it means to measure ESG. Uh, there's been one story in the news I really wanted to ask you about. Uh, to see if you think it it falls into ESG. Uh, I suppose I should tell you that I think it does, but I won't tell you which one. And that's the uh, Goldman Sachs uh, 100-hour work week. And when I read that, two things that struck me about that. One was negative or reputational damage to Goldman Sachs, but also one of the points you raised, which is uh, employees are now speaking up about issues that are important to them. And I say that because... Uh, I started private practice in a law firm, and although we didn't work 100-hour weeks, we worked 70- or 80-hour weeks, and that was just the way it was. No one said anything. And um, now you have very junior employees saying either this is not right, I'm not productive, or I don't like this in a very public way. Do you find that that entire discussion falls within the, the parameters of ESG? 100% agree with you. And what I think is not getting enough attention in all of this conversation about ESG is that, you know, your internal uh, community is the best place to start. If you're a company that's publicly saying we want to be, you know, ESG aligned and we believe that sustainable business practices are the way of the future and we care about our community and that S in terms of impact. Well, I mean, the easiest place to start that and really show that commitment is internally. Um, and you can even think about things like employee resource groups, right? ERGs or diversity and inclusion efforts. You know, how does, how does that really stack up in terms of the public facing, you know, ESG commitment if you're not doing those things um, internally? And so, you know, I absolutely agree with you. I think if you were to kind of look for some studies in this in this space, and I'm sure there are some, you would see that the companies that are kind of most um, community or employee-oriented internally, right, that treat their people well, that care about that S when it comes to their own community internally, are the ones that are also bringing that message externally in their mission and their vision from a business external perspective. So I totally agree. I mean, I think it's a super interesting um, example. It's because, A, to your point, right, like it's kind of like the power of social media and that aspect of, you know, where does ESG just become reputational risk, um, which is something we can talk about. But it's also just, you know, it's such a big company and these were fairly junior people. And it's like, okay, well, you know, maybe people have a voice now um, to talk about, you know, their internal community from an employer perspective where they, where they didn't previously. And also, to pick up on one of your points, with the various measurements, uh, both uh, private sector, public sector, and regulatory sector around ESG, it strikes me that uh, there are different functions within a corporation that might claim ESG and I know yeah. one of the conversations you and I have had in the past is why compliance really needs to take the lead. I was wondering if you could give us your thoughts on 
the disparate impact within a corporation and, and why we both think, uh, or at least you think, compliance mm-hmm. is well-suited uh, to take a lead role in this, really, or else. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I think one of the challenges that a lot um, of companies are facing today, even, you know, with let's take the best company with the best intentions in this space, right? They want to do it right. I mean, historically, ESG, again, because it, it can mean different things and has historically sort of meant different things, it's been managed across a number of different departments in a given organization, right? And and those don't, aren't always the same. That's not consistent. So you might see like a CSR, corporate social responsibility function, um, kind Kind of historically done some of the ESG work, or you might even see it in sort of like a procurement function, right? From a supply chain perspective or a sustainability perspective, today they might be thinking about ESG. Um, again, compliance, right? So you've got all of it today, you've got ESG issues falling on the desk of a number of different departments some of which, you know, might be thinking about these things from different lens or different ways that may not come together for a truly aligned or commensurate approach when it comes to ESG. Um, you know, I think my, you know, what we're seeing is that there, there definitely needs to be kind of a consolidation of that ownership of ESG risk. And compliance is certainly one of the best places to do it. I mean, why? I think first and foremost, and it, it must be said, and it, you know, we haven't touched on this yet. We're talking about ESG from from an investor perspective, or from a reputational perspective, or from a returns perspective, employee perspective. But you know, ESG is very quickly becoming a regulatory issue. Uh, you know, just in the past month or so, you know, President Biden announced. That, uh, an enforcement task force in the SEC to ensure that companies are living up or really kind of uh, making good on the public commitments they make in the ESG space. And we're seeing that globally, uh, you know, in, in 2021 and very, I guess, like last month in February, um, Germany passed a law around ensuring that uh, company supply chains are ESG friendly um, and comply with human rights regulations in that company. And I mean, just this very month, um, the EU sustainable finance disclosure regulations have come into effect, which essentially are asking companies to, to make sure that, again, any ESG commitments they're making in the public sphere are backed up by data. I mean, we're seeing this all over the world. Um, and, and I believe, you know, the U.S. has has been a little behind on this subject, um, but is is quickly catching up. So that regulatory aspect, right? I mean, it fits firmly within a, a compliance view of ESG. I mean, not only um, is there that regulatory perspective. I think in terms of bringing ESG risk into kind of the mainstream everyday regular operations of how companies make risk decisions, compliance is very well positioned to do that. It's done it before. You know, we know that compliance functions are historically skilled at both measuring risk, right, and sort of putting in those mechanisms to test, to control, to measure, to create KRIs, KPIs, to really get that um, consistent data-driven view of compliance with a given, be it regulation that we're seeing, or internal commitment. 
But compliance is also really good at sort of ensuring that that is also adopted from sort of a hearts and minds perspective, right? Compliance understands that you cannot, you know, just ask people to change the way that they make decisions without proper training, without a tone from the top, without really those cultural reinforcements that bring about accountability. So when you think about ESG risk, right, and how to make sure that companies are really kind of living and breathing the commitments they're making, as well as their, you know, upcoming and increasingly stringent regulatory obligations in this space, you need both that kind of measurement side to ensure sort of enforcement, but also that heart and mind side. And, and I really think from my experience, you know, working with compliance companies, it's all types of organizations, financial institutions, corporates, you know, even, you know, you see it in, in, in government as well. Compliance is really kind of well positioned to, to get at ESG risk um, on both sides. And I'll just add, Tom, you know, what I think is so amazing about this moment that we're living in is, you know, ESG is becoming real and we have an opportunity right now to kind of build a framework so that it's not just that lip service or that PR or that marketing ploy, that it really does change how we as a society, as a, as a global business community conduct business. Um, and if we can do it right, I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic that we will feel, be feeling those benefits, you know, literally for generations to come. So I think now is the moment we got to do it right. And if we do it well, like here we come world, um, we can take on some of these giant challenges facing us. Well, one of the things that uh, struck me about or strikes me about compliance is that in many ways, the SOX 404 financial controls, the COSO internal controls framework form the backbone of a best practices compliance program. Could we take those same concepts we see in particularly the COSO framework and adapt those to ESG with perhaps even a compliance overlay? Yeah, you know, I think so. And, I, and, and to your point, right, so what is ESG? You know, maybe should we start calling ESG like GES. I mean, we're not just kidding, but you know, that governance aspect, um, has been that, that, that backbone of, of compliance programs. Um, it's a backbone of what we, what I've done at Exeter, right? Anything you want to do from a risk management perspective, you need to make sure that you've got the governance to, to, uh, embed that, to implement that correctly. And so I absolutely think that there are governance frameworks out there, right? That really can make sure that, that ESG commitments, again, be it however you're defining that commitment. It can be a regulatory requirement. It can be an internal commitment. It can be a, a stakeholder, shareholder commitment that you're really kind of complying with them in, um, in a, an end-to-end way. And I think that's what you're saying, Tom, right? So how to, how to create these frameworks that are end-to-end and use controls and testing and such to ensure that they are, uh, living up to that commitment. I completely agree, right? That governance aspect is absolutely huge here. Um, it's embedded in what ESG is, and it's a real opportunity to, to make it real for a lot of companies um, around the world. So we talked about uh, measuring ESG, but you had another point, and I really like your phrase, the hearts and minds part. When you sit down across the table from a compliance officer or even a business executive or senior leadership about adopting ESG, how do you help them think through uh, both delivering on the hearts and minds, but also um, 
communicating that and then measuring that going forward as well. Yeah. And in in one way, I think it's not so different than any other area of risk, right? So you do need, as as we were just saying, you do need those same tools um, to really measure and, and ensure embeddedness. I think what's interesting about ESG from that kind of cultural adoption perspective is in some ways, I think it's actually easier. A lot of these issues, a lot of what ESG is, is our lived experience. And as opposed to some other areas of risk, which can feel slightly esoteric to people, right? Um, ESG can be made real in, in pretty quickly because it, it, it touches everything we do as, as people who live in societies, be it in the U.S. or, or elsewhere. Um, what I think can be a little challenging about that is as kind of going back to our conversation on sort of these different metrics about what ESG is, is that that can almost be a little overwhelming. Um, so what I kind of, you know, would I do urge my clients to do is to think a little bit um, about true measurable commitment because, you know, some parts of ESG are fairly quantifiable. You know, I think a lot of focus, and, and rightfully so in my personal opinion, and, and recently has been on the E, um, on the climate side. And when it comes to kind of measuring climate impact, there actually are fairly sophisticated um, and mature measurements out there that can really quantify, you know, what, what a company's environmental impact is. When it comes to some of those S things, like we were discussing, some of those social questions, you know, you make commitment to being, you know, uh, to believing in equity, gender equity. Well, what does that really mean? And so what I would say is, you know, again, that, that can be easy from an adoption perspective. That can be a little hard from a measurement perspective. So I would, you know, I urge clients to think about those things from truly measurable perspectives, put a commitment around that, define it as it fits your business profile, as your business need. It's not going to be the same for everyone, and that's fine. But that hearts and minds, you know, people will be able to adopt that commitment if they know what it really means and, and defining it in a way that is measurable, realistic, you know, time, um, time framed and so on. I think, you know, those two things really need to go together when you're talking about questions as sort of broad and, and socially impactful um, as some of the, the issues that come up when you talk about ESG. We're now uh, one year plus into the pandemic. And I was wondering uh, how has the last year COVID-19 really changed either your approach or what you've seen in the market around ESG? Yeah, definitely. I think it's changed a lot. I think it has accelerated this conversation, which was already picking up speed even before the pandemic. I mean, the first comment there, I think um, what you saw in 2020 was that ESG outperformed the market. Um, And I think, you know, there was a lot of kind of chatter about that because people are saying, well, is that even, is that, is that because they're ESG companies or is that just because, you know, ESG actually happens to be a lot of technology companies that aren't getting the same supply chain interruptions and maybe that's just why. And, and we're, you know, proving the wrong thesis here. You know, I don't really think it matters because what it 
does is it brings a focus on ESG resiliency, right? So I think if we have one word that came out of the pandemic, right, it's about business resiliency and business continuity. And that fits very firmly within a conversation about ESG, right? So you see that companies that are managing ESG risk well end up being those companies that are most resilient, that can most most withstand shocks. And I mean, what greater shock was there than a year ago um, when we all abruptly, you know, started staying home and, and completely changed our business practices. So I, I think this focus on resiliency, on what, you know, the COVID pandemic has done to shift that conversation toward thinking about sustainable, resilient business practices goes hand in glove with a conversation about managing ESG risk. And I, and I think that companies are absolutely recognizing that, right? They're going from a place of, okay, I want to minimize, you know, the risk that comes, be it in my third party population, in my supply chain. I want to minimize my ESG risk. And in doing so, I am going to increase my own resiliency, my own operational, you know, resiliency, my operational health, my business continuity. And I think that's only a great thing moving forward, right? You know, whether this pandemic ends tomorrow, in six months, a year, I think that is a lesson that we will take with us. Um, and is one of hopefully, you know, the silver linings that we have coming out of this, this challenging past year. So where do you see ESG in 2025 or perhaps even into 2030? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting question because, you know, Larry Fink has famously said, you know, climate risk is actually just like investment risk, right? ESG risk is just risk. And and I do think, you know, I don't know if we'll get there within a single decade, but I think a couple decades from now, that's where we'll be. Uh, you know, the world is changing so rapidly and some of these issues are going to be um, really kind of our lived experience from a business perspective and we will have to manage them whether we call them ESG or not. I think uh, in a few years from now, if we're talking about 2025 or even 2030, you know, it is possible that we'll be in a very different regulatory environment, even with the changes that I mentioned earlier. So it is, you know, I very possible that ESG becomes even more firmly rooted in a, in a regulatory department or in a compliance department. Um, again, even more so, I think we're going to get to a point where we're thinking not just about ESG risk and minimizing that risk in our third parties or in our supply chain, but really thinking about ESG value generation, right? So instead of just making sure that I'm not, you know, doing business with you know, anyone involved in modern slavery or, you know, harmful environmental practices, I'm going to start thinking about where I can do business so that I'm creating ESG value. And I think, you know, that sort of um, continuum from risk to value generation, you know, I think it's it's coming, you know, to become, uh, it's starting to become a little bit more popular and, and a little bit more front of mind for people. But I do think within five or 10 years, you know, that is where we'll go. And, and, and I'm very much looking forward to it because I think really when you talk about ESG risk, then the next place to think about is, is ESG value generation 
positive impact from an ESG perspective, how your business can do that, again, through its own practices, through its third-party management, through its supply chain. Um, and I think, you know, in a few years from now, that will be a, a really mature and sophisticated, well-development, well-developed area of, of focus for companies. Well, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on any of the topics we've discussed or any more information on yourself, where could they go? Yeah, so they can absolutely check out um, Exeger's website, exeger.com. But I really do encourage people to follow Exeger on LinkedIn to hear from our experts. Um, That's really where we put in our expert commentary in a really easy to understand, easy to digest way. So check out Exeger on LinkedIn and then um, for a lot more on this topic and other areas of risk management and risk mitigation. Lord, this has just been a fascinating uh, exploration of a wide variety of ESG topics. I hope that perhaps in the future I might be able to call upon you again for another uh, exploration. Definitely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. We have a great new show on the Compliance Podcast Network called Mo Forecast which is a podcast of the law firm of Morrison and Forrester, hosted by James Kukios. Check that out on the Compliance Podcast Network. Also, in the month of April on The Compliance Life, I'm featuring Jonathan Kellerman, partner at Stone Turn. He's a fascinating career in healthcare compliance, culminating in the CCO chair at Allergan before he moved over to Stone Turn. So check out The Compliance Life on Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you'll join me again next week for another episode of the award-winning FCPA Compliance Report. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.